you for your word uh, tonight. Uh, words will absolutely fail me. I am uh, insufficient to communicate the truth of your word from these wonderful, wonderful chapters. I pray that your spirit would take what is yours and you would apply it to our minds and to our spirits. Uh, and would you do that, please, just individually so that we leave here saying, I have a, a, a one step better understanding of how to uh, gain some forward progress in my Christian life. Uh, would you do that, please, Holy Spirit? We need you to come. We need you to teach. Uh, we need you to communicate these things in your special way to each person as he or she will best understand it. Uh, please do that uh, for your glory and for the sake of these uh, people, all of us here at Christ Chapel. Would you do that, please? We thank you, and we pray for this, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. What I've been trying to teach you since September is very simply contained in one whiteboard. There it is. This is Genesis through Joshua. Genesis, there was a promise God made to Abraham. What was that promise? Land, seed, and blessing. What was the first one? Land. So from Genesis 12, God made a promise to Abraham and all those who would become Jacob would become Israel. He made them a promise that they would inherit a piece of ground, at least, known as the promised land. From there they went to Egypt, where they were under bondage for 430 years. God redeemed them. Redemption. God redeemed them out of Egypt by grace, through faith, under blood. He took them out. They passed through the Red Sea. He took them to Mount Sinai, where he began to prepare them with his word and also with experiences to be able to trust him. What did they do? They said, no, thank you. And so the first generation rebelled against him. He said, Burger King, have it your way. Wander 40 years in the desert. And so they spent that first, the first generation spent themselves wandering in the desert. From there, the second generation grows up. Moses brings them to this point. Moses dies. Joshua takes over and leads them across the Jordan River into the promised land, which was their inheritance, the realization of the promise that God had given back here in Genesis 12. Right? Good summary. Everybody tracking with me so far? This is it. You've spent since September just learning this. Here we go. So we've gone from redemption, preparation, wandering, they finally realize and possess their inheritance. My point with taking this little rabbit trail over here into Romans is there is an analog for us today. This is a picture, historical, true historical picture of what Israel went through. This picture translates into today. You and I have an inheritance from God. What is that? Remember, this is the good part of the test. Yeah. Ephesians 1.3. What does Ephesians 1.3 say? Who's got their Bible open? Ephesians 1.3. What does it say? We have been given an inheritance. Every 
I, I need you to underline that. Every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus is on account for you in heaven right now. You're not waiting for it. It is there on account. Who put it there? Jesus. Who earned it? Jesus. Did you? No. But he gave you a checkbook and said, you can write a check on this. My daddy will cash it. This check will not bounce. Every spiritual blessing is laid up for you right now. What are some other, what are some other um, inheritances we've been given? Ephesians 1.3. Galatians 5.22 and 23. Remember the fruit of the Spirit? Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are all, whose, whose fruit are they? Oh, they're the spirits. Where is the spirit? Inside you. What do you have? Love, joy. Whoa, Bill, you don't follow me around very much. <laughs> Love, joy, peace, patience. No, wait, that is your inheritance. Do you not have it? Answer, you do, but you, it's sitting out here waiting for you. Sometimes... Just like the first generation, we Christians can wander around out here in the wilderness and not know how to cross the river and possess our inheritance. This is the analog to the picture that I've been trying to paint for you. So we've jumped off here into Romans because I want you to be able to... Paul with Romans has put in the theology behind this picture. Does that make sense? Here's the picture. And a couple thousand years later, Paul comes along and says, let me tell you about the theology behind what's going on here. So they come into the land, they get their inheritance. We can press into our land, in quotes, that God has promised us, Ephesians 1.3, Galatians 5.22 and 23, not to mention the things, Ephesians 2.10, he created us for good works, which he prepared does he want me to have those? Yes, in order that we may walk in them. There's more inheritance for you in what he wants you to do in this life. He's given you promise after promise. He's given you a promised land, so to speak, right, in quotes. He's given this to you. But we're, we just get stuck out here. And we have to get back across the river. Okay, we got to get across the river. Whew. Now... I'm sufficiently wound up to get going here. <laughs> Those who are living in the promised land, this is the place we want to live. Remember, the manna stopped. You remember that from Joshua? And what did God give on the other side of the Jordan in the promised land? Depending on your translation, it says, you know, new corn or new grain or new food. Right? Remember that? He gave us food sustenance, provision on the other side that he hadn't given us before. Not what is that, that would be inappropriate English. Who is that? The Holy Spirit. Paul's going to write to us in Romans 5, 6, 7, 8. He wants us to get a relationship settled. Then he wants to talk to us about how do I stop deliberate sin 
Then in 7 and 8, he's going to talk about how do I pursue holiness. This is the picture. Paul's coming along here, and he's going to put some theology, New Testament theology, underneath that picture. So you and I say, I got the picture. I can do the picture because of what God has done for me. Okay. Those who've crossed the river have settled the answers to three questions and then live in light of those answers. Last time we looked at Romans chapter 5. This is the foundation. We all struggle and have to go back and revisit Romans chapter 5. But Romans 5 is the foundation. How does God see me? Really? Paul answered that in Romans chapter 5 with the word justification, which we talked about a legal declaration by which God declares the guilty sinner righteous by imputing the righteousness of Christ to his or her account. Did I earn it? No. It was imputed to me. It was reckoned to my account, like an accounting term. The penalty has been paid. Oh, I get rid of this. Okay, always remember this and never forget it. Okay, good. Okay, the penalty has been paid. Our position has been changed permanently, eternally, forever. Christ died for us. So we have a new position, a new standing, and new privileges. That's what Romans 5 is about. That's what we tried to tease out a couple of weeks ago. And I said, remember, there are two lands, if you will, two gigantic pieces of ground. One I labeled Egypt, one I labeled the promised land. In Egypt, I'm a sinner. God's acceptance is conditional. I live under the dew of ceaseless works. Self-effort is the rule of life. Difficulties, hardships, and suffering must be God's punishment. And what's my response to all of that? I have to try harder. I live under the debilitating idea of performance and bookkeeping. And if something goes wrong in my life, how do I see that? God is just some kind of a mean, killjoy, judge, policeman. And he, because I can't escape him, he sees every bad thing I do and he gets even with me. That's what he does. That's bookkeeping. When I came to Christ, I became a saint and a son or daughter of the king. God's acceptance is full, complete, and forever. Pause. Do you believe this? You have, this is the foundation. You've got to believe this and come back to this every day. For some of us, we have a challenging upbringing that makes this harder. For some, you don't have that. It might make this a little bit easier. Point. We've all got to go back to this as the foundation. This is what we stand on. The done of grace. There's no more do. It's done. It's done through the Holy Spirit. 
And now difficulties, hardships, and suffering are God's tools to transform me. But instead of living under a mean Pharaoh, who am I living under? A wonderful God who loves me. And how did he demonstrate that love? Even when I was a sinner, he died for me. Dare I ever question his love? He has demonstrated what the extent of his love looks like. This person loves me, and these things are tools that he uses to shape me into the most blessed image he can come up with, and that is his son. So every time something bad or wrong happens to you, it's just God saying, Bill, how, how are you going to respond? Because I, I got a file, and I need to file off a rough edge here. Now with me, he still is using a hammer because there's so much to change. <laughs> but these are just tools in the hands of someone who loves me and is trying to bring something out of me that he sees that I don't see yet. And so it's not me trying harder by myself, it's our effort, his plus mine. This is a totally different land we're living in than this land. This is Romans chapter 5. Some of you, you're visual like me. I talked to you about a wall. There's a wall. Right? That looks like a wall, doesn't it? There's a wall. I was born into Adam. Now I'm born again into the last Adam. That's Romans 5. See, the issue with humanity today isn't, you know, are you human or how good or bad are you? It's, who's your father? What family are you a part of? You're either a part of the first Adam and his family, or you're a part of the last Adam and his family. There's only two kinds of humanity, first Adam and last Adam. And we all started off in the first Adam. But there are some who are now in the family of the last Adam, and that's all that counts. Okay. Ah, Romans 5. Yeah. So what did I inherit from Adam? Again, I'm doing a little bit of review. What did I inherit from Adam? Sin, religion, right? Religion. Mm-hmm. Let me see some head shaking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't cuss and drink and smoke and go with girls who do, right? That was, that's religion. What did I inherit from Jesus? Righteousness, a relationship with God. Grace, love, unbelievable what I inherited from the last Adam. Is the first Adam for me or against me? He is against me. He may deceive me into thinking he's for me, but all he can bring me is sin and death. But what can the last Adam bring me? Life. Freedom, life abundantly. That's what the last Adam can bring me. Romans chapter 5 is so foundational to what we're going to continue to talk about. Why? Because we are so tempted to go back to the bookkeeping mindset. And even as a Christian, uh, 
something, you may do something and forget about it, and a week later, something else happens, and you, in your mind, the first thing you go to is, God saw me do that. And you know what he's doing? (laughs) He's evening the score. He just whacked me. All right, well, we're even now, God. This happens so fast in your brain. You run to bookkeeping. That is not Romans 5. There is no more bookkeeping. The books have been closed. You raised your hand when God said, are there any guilty sinners who need salvation? And you know what you did? You raised your hand. You said, I am guilty as charged. And he said, everyone who's guilty, stand over here. And you stood over there. And he said, do you agree that you're guilty? Yes, I do. Do you believe my son paid the way for you? Yes, I do. Well, then you're in my family now. You people over here who said, no, I don't agree. I'm not a sinner. He said, you can't come in yet. You already said you were guilty. This issue is settled. There's a penalty against you, and it was paid by Christ in full, better than you could have ever paid it in in an eternity of life. The issue is settled. You are on the right-hand side of the wall, and he is never going to take a helicopter and drop you back over here. He's not going to send you back through some secret doorway. You're on this side in his family forever. Settle the issue in spite of all the things that tell you it's not true. It is true. I have a wonderful father. He never uh, mistreated me or abused me or anything like that. Good father. But I didn't have God. My father still treated me under a bookkeeping mindset. Right? And so did yours. And so do I to my sons. Why? Because I'm not God. And neither was my father. So what's the natural mindset I have even as a Christ follower? Performance, bookkeeping, mindset. That's the, I don't have an analog for that relationship. I've never been in a relationship with someone who loves me unconditionally. I don't have anything to connect that with in my life experience other than my walk with God, right? Uh, Okay. Oh, my gosh. You are safe and secure forever. Bill, move on. Okay. How does God see me? Really? He really sees you as a saint, a son or daughter. You have been changed, and you are not going back to the other side because God does not change his mind. He knew more about you when he saved you than you did at the time. And you say, but Lord, I'm I'm worse today than I was then. Hmm, No, you're not, Bill. And you still haven't even seen very deep into that. (laughs) But I know even worse than that. And I love you in spite of who you are and what you've done. But Daddy, what about (sighs) Bill? There's worse than that. You just haven't seen it yet. In spite of that, 
I love you. And you're in my family now. And there's no door and there's no helicopter. He's not taking you to the other side. You are his. Completely, fully, finally his. Settle that issue. And you say, that's already settled, Bill. Move on. I have to settle that issue every morning. You understand what I'm saying? There's a bookkeeping mindset that creeps in. And you say, today I've got to try harder for God. No. (laughs) Today I have to rest in the fact that he loved me and he brought me over to himself. And I can rest in that. I don't have to prove to him anything. He's already proven everything to me and for me. Great. So Paul has established the foundation, our relationship with God. You are firmly, finally, fully secure in him on the right-hand side of the wall. Where is that? Go back. Forever. You're not going to go on the other side. Okay. So what? Point again. If you're not secure on this side, what will you not deal honestly with? Your sin. What will you do with your sin? You'll justify it. You'll rationalize it. And you'll hide behind it. And guess what God wants? Guess what he knows? (laughs) He already knows the truth. You think you're hiding it from him? But if we have a bookkeeping mindset... You know, Bill, I saw you get angry at that person. No, no, I didn't. Bill, I saw that. It was completely justified. You saw what they did to me. Bill, (laughs) that's the bookkeeping mindset talking. What do I need to do? 1 John 1, 9. You know 1 John 1, 9? Anyone know 1? Okay. The key word in 1 John 1, 9 in Greek is called homologeon. Homologeon means to agree with God. It means to be of one mind, walk in the same thought track as God's mind is walking. God says, Bill, you, you sinned. You're right, Daddy, I did. I did. How is the only way, how can I say that? Because I'm secure in this relationship with someone who loves me. And I can say, yes, I did. Yes, I did. Bill, do you have any excuse? No, sir. I have no excuse. Good. What do you need to do with that? I need to repent. Right, right. Will you help me do it, Daddy? Love to. Ready, willing, and able. Ready to start now? Otherwise, I just hide. I hope this is making sense to you because this is where we're going with chapter 6. Now, you say, I read chapter 6 and I didn't get that. Put on the brakes. Pause. Here we go. Romans chapter 6. How does God see me really? How do I overcome deliberate sin? Romans chapter 6, how do I overcome deliberate sin? This is the issue of license. You say, well, what does license mean? Well, license means 
that uh, I know it's sin and I'm going to do it anyway because I know I'll be forgiven. Oh, sorry, am I meddling? I know this is sin, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I'm going to presume and take advantage of my Father's grace and do what I want to do. That's the issue of license. And you say, where do you get that? Romans 6, verse 1. Let me back up to Romans 5 and start reading at 20. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more and more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Right? God is going to be more glorified if I sin more. And Paul says, in the New Living, he says, of course not. In another translation, he says, may it never be. What Paul really says, I can't write on the screen because there are two elders in the room and they would bring me up on church discipline. But here's what it says, not only no, but no. That's what Paul says. Meganoida is not, of course not. It's not only no, but he is, ah! He's saying, what is wrong with you? He's apoplectic about this question. And you say, well, whoa, okay. Verse 15, well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. (laughs) Not only no, but... He says twice in this chapter, shall I continue sinning to somehow exalt, glorify, or manifest God's something or other? And his answer to both, both times this is launched out there is... Not only no, but mm, no. How do I overcome deliberate sin? Topic of chapter 6. Answer, we died with Christ to sin. We died to sin as a master. Some of you say, whew, glad he's not talking about me tonight. So allow me to rephrase deliberate sin just a little bit. How do I stop doing what I know I shouldn't be doing? Let me use as a jumping off point, if you were able to hear Ben's message today on Jonah and Jonah's anger, let me just pick anger. And the book I love to hate. Let me read you just a little thing that he has On anger. Reading from uh, Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. Robert Jones, in his book Uprooting Anger, wrote Anger is a universal problem prevalent in every culture, experienced by every generation. No one is isolated from its presence or immune from its poison. It permeates each person and spoils our most intimate relationships. 
Anger is a given part of our fallen human fabric. And then Jones added, sadly, this is true even in our Christian homes and churches. Jerry Bridges says, I would add to Jones' observation about our Christian homes and churches that our anger is often directed toward those we should love most, our spouse, children, parents, or siblings in our human families, and those who are true brothers and sisters in Christ in our church families. I once knew a fellow believer who was the epitome of graciousness to other people, but was continually angry with his wife and children. Fortunately, after years of this, God finally convicted him and helped him deal with his anger. He goes on then to define anger. He says, my dictionary defines anger simply as a strong feeling of displeasure and usually of antagonism. I would add that it's often accompanied by sinful emotions, words, and actions hurtful to those who are the objects of our anger. Goes on. This is more horrible things that he goes on with. It comes down to this. Uh, He says, in facing up to our anger, we need to realize that no one else causes us to be angry. Someone else's words or actions may become the occasion of our anger, but the cause lies deep within us, usually our pride or selfishness or desire to control. I agreed to do something for a friend, and then I forgot. When my failure came to light, he became quite angry with me. Why did he become so visibly upset? It was because my failure had made him look bad in front of some of his friends. This is not to excuse my forgetfulness and the real fact that I had put him in an awkward situation. But the cause of his anger was not my failure, but his pride. We may become angry because someone has mistreated us in some way. A person gossips about us, and when we hear about it, we get angry. Why? It's likely because our reputation or our character has been questioned. Again, the cause is our pride. We get angry because we don't get our way. On and on and on and on and on. And he concludes that paragraph with, I want my way. Let me re-ask the question. And if you'd like, there are other chapters in here. If anger isn't your particular cup of tea, uh, there are certainly some other chapters in here that I would love for you to uh, peruse at your opportunity. Deliberate sin. How do I stop doing what I know I shouldn't be doing? Let me jump off with Ben's message this morning on anger. How many, don't raise your hands, because some of you will lie. I know you. How many of you in the past, oh, let's give it, I'll give it one day, but let's go ahead and give it since Friday, okay, so Saturday and Sunday, we're almost done with Sunday. How many of you over this weekend have gotten angry once? Don't, don't raise your hand, don't raise your hand, because the rest of you will be liars. <laughs> you got angry. Now, I don't, it, it's true that in the heat of the moment, you, we may fire up, okay? But what happens when we realize what we've done? There's the key. 
if I live under a bookkeeping mindset, I'm going to hide my sin. My anger was justified. They gossiped about me. That guy forgot. He said he was going to do that, and I looked bad in front of somebody. That guy cut me off on the road. I was afraid for my life, and then I had to ride up next to him and show him my displeasure and that I knew what he had done to me. Now, if I live under a bookkeeping mindset, a day or two goes by, and I might still remember this incident, and I might not. But let's pretend God comes to me, and if I lived under a bookkeeping mindset, Bill, hey, sit down. Oh, Daddy, do we have to sit down in the family room? Yes, yes, yeah. I, I want you to be comfortable. Okay. Hey, um, hmm. I saw you driving in uh, the other day. Hmm. You did. I did. I did. My eyes are not like yours. I can see everything. I can see the speedometer. I can see the rear view. I can see out the windshield. I can see to the side. I saw everything. Hmm. Hmm. Well, then, Daddy, you saw how that guy cut me off. <laughs> well, Bill, um, I, I did see how he cut you off. That's not what I want to talk about. Well, Daddy, uh, completely justified what I did. You saw. You said you saw how he pulled in front of me. I just wanted him to know that somebody noticed what he was doing in hopes that he wouldn't do that to anyone else. Maybe I'm the only sinner in this room. Bill, um, that's what I want to talk to you about. Uh, see, that car pulling over there, that's not the cause of your anger. That's the occasion for your anger. <laughs> uh, really? <laughs> if I want to live on the left-hand side, I'm going through bookkeeping performance, and I want to make sure I don't look bad, right? What does God tell me? Why is this so important? Because it's only living in the security of that relationship on the other side that I can say, hamalageon. Daddy, you saw correctly. I was angry, and frankly, I'm still angry. I know, Bill. Let's talk about that. Okay, let's talk about that. Why'd you get angry? Because <sighs> I want control. Hmm. Anything deeper than that? Yeah. Could you articulate it? Yeah. Go ahead and say it, because maybe I already know what you're thinking. I want to be God. And I want things to work out for me just the way I want them to work out for me each and every day. Yeah, Bill, that's it. Do you know I had an angel once who wanted to be God? <sighs> yeah. Yeah, Daddy, I know that. 
Stand up, son. I love you. Thanks for homologeon. You're agreeing with me. And do you know what you need to do with that? Yeah, Daddy. I need to repent. I need to repent of that. What that guy did wasn't right, but my response was not right. It was instantaneous. I couldn't have stopped it. But now I'm even nurturing it during the week. Daddy, I, I don't have the power to do this. I know. I'm ready, willing, and able to help you. You ready to start today? Yeah, Daddy, I am. Do you see the difference Romans 5 makes? If you don't feel secure in the family room with the daddy who loves you, you aren't going to come clean to yourself because God already knows it. You're not going to come clean to yourself and begin to A, be healed from that and B, allow him to do something about it. You're going to keep trying to do it yourself and try harder the next time. Do you see how this bookkeeping performance mindset creeps in even into the believer? Look at Jonah. Jonah is a prophet of God. Does he know the word of God? Oh my gosh, he knows the word of God. And what does he do? I'm angry. I'm angry enough to die. What? <laughs> Jonah, I have to say, I'm a little surprised by this. What does God say to him? Are you right to be angry? It's a question expecting a no. <laughs> no. But Jonah doesn't get it yet. <laughs> Jonah still thinks the answer is yes. Yes, I'm right. it's right for me to be angry. God's answer is no, it's not right for you to be angry. You say, whoa. Second Peter. Go ahead, Second Peter. It's more New Testament. I got it, I got it. Second Peter, beginning in verse 18. Second Peter, almost at the end of the Bible. Second Peter, chapter 2, verse 18. Second Peter 2, beginning in 18. You who are slaves must accept the authority of your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased with you when you do what you know is right and patiently endure unfair treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. You mean I don't get to drive up real fast next to the guy who just caught me off and give him the one finger wave? I don't get to do that? No, you don't. In fact, you should be. Hmm? Second Peter chapter 2. Oh, First Peter chapter 2. Who said second? Gosh, I don't like that guy. First Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Yeah, I saw the big two and I went to Second Peter. Sorry, sorry, sorry. All my fault. Hamalageon. I agree with all of you. First Peter 2. I should do, what do you call this? 
shreds. First Peter chapter two, verse 18. Sorry, thank you for that correction. I stand corrected. Oh, goodness. Chapter 6. I'm getting back to my notes. I was getting into big trouble here. So how do I stop doing what I know I shouldn't be doing? Romans 6, 1 through 14. I hope you read it. I don't have time to go over it, but it's a masterful argument. I'm going to break it down for you, but let me give you the punchline first, and then I'll show you how Paul breaks this apart. He's dealing here with deliberate sin. Shall I go on sinning so that God is more glorified or whatever? Not only no, but mm, no. Then he explains why he's talking about what he's talking about. Here's the point Paul is trying to make. If my future with God is so certain and secure, Romans 5, then I can live as I want to, obeying God only if and when I feel like it. <laughs> I don't care for Paul much. That's why I stay in the Old Testament, because I can avoid most of this. Believers should not think that way about grace. Believers cannot think that way about grace. You shouldn't think that, and you can't think that way about grace. Not only no, but hmm, no. God has made us partakers of his power over sin, and that power should increasingly reveal itself through a lifestyle of righteousness and holiness. Point. Ongoing sin is inadmissible in a Christian's life. It's incongruent with who you are, Romans 5. You're no longer on the left-hand side of the wall. You're on the right-hand side of the wall. It's incongruent with your new family. An attitude of resignation is no better. Well, uh, I got saved at six. I don't know what to do. I guess I die and I'm with Jesus and then everything's good. But up until that time, I don't know what to do. I guess I just do the best I can. Resignation. I don't know what to do. Or no one will tell me what to do. Ooh, that's a good one. It's called not taking responsibility. It's their fault. <laughs> Pastor has never told me how to do it. I'm good. I'm happy to live in ignorance. Ongoing sin is inadmissible in a Christian's life. That's Paul's point of chapter 6. Why? Because the justified have been set free from the land and therefore the power of sin. And he makes two points about this. This was the picture. You've been moved from one land to the other land. The justified have been set free from the land and therefore the power of sin. First point that he makes in the first 14 verses. Why? Because they have a new life and power. They have been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Pause. Do you believe this? 
Do you know that you have already been resurrected? All you're waiting for is the fulfillment of your new body. You have already been resurrected. Do you understand what Paul's writing here? You're dead. You were buried in the ground and God raised you from the dead in Christ. What are you waiting for? Your new body. You're already resurrected. That's why in John 17, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that you will know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. That's why eternal life is ours right now. You're already living eternal life. You've already been resurrected. Ongoing sin in a Christian's life, it's it's incongruous. You've been raised from the dead. Okay, just let it sink in. You have a new identity. They've been set free, verse 11, he says, and they are partakers of his new power, 12 through 14. You are no longer who you used to be. Here was God's ingenuity. No one saw this coming. He says, here's how I'm going to get the people from the family of Adam into my family. I'm going to co-crucify them, I'm going to co-bury them, and I'm going to co-resurrect them. I'm not taking them over the top of the wall. I'm taking them under the wall. And they're never getting back. Because you can't unresurrect yourself. You can't unbury yourself. You can't uncrucify yourself. You are safe and secure on the right-hand side. Why? Because this is what God did for you to get you to the other side. You're dead. You've been buried. And you have already been resurrected in Christ. That's his point. As Christ was resurrected, so you have been resurrected. I don't know if you're stunned or you're going, you're a heretic. I can't figure this out right now. You should be going, oh my gosh, this is amazing. All right, it's amazing. Whether you think so or not, I don't care. All right, I do. There's a new life and a new power at work in you because you are co-crucified, co-buried, and co-resurrected with Christ, accomplished, done, in the past, finished, over. It's why the right-hand side is so safe and secure. He didn't bring you over the wall, and then he can helicopter you back over. He brought you under the wall. No one saw this coming. How do you take somebody out of the law? They die. Right? If I'm dead, the law doesn't apply to me anymore, right? I don't care what law it is today. If I'm dead, no law applies to me anymore. I have been freed from the law. Yes? What if he resurrects me and he resurrects me without my sin? There's nothing left in the past. There's nothing left. Oh my goodness, this is such good stuff. The justified have been set free from the land and therefore the power of sin. They have a new life and power. Then he spends the second half of the chapter, they live under a new master. Remember Jesus says no one can serve two masters. Oh my gosh, that's what we try to do every day. And you're thinking God and money. There's two other masters. 
There's Jesus, and there's the old Pharaoh. And you try to serve both every day. No one can serve two masters. It's incongruous for you to try to live under the old Pharaoh and allow him to tell you to do anything. You're free from that. In fact, you're dead. He has no more sway or hold over you. Their new master, this is the justified ones, their new master, Jesus, loves them and only wants their good. Pause. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus only wants your good? Well, I don't know. Sometimes I'm not sure. Because what's happening to me right now kind of looks bad and feels bad. But God uses all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Their new master, Jesus, loves them and only wants their good. Pharaoh didn't want what was good for me. All Pharaoh had as currency was death. What does Jesus have as currency? Life. While they are not all they will one day become, they are no longer who they were. You are no longer who you were. You have died, been buried, and resurrected with Jesus Christ. That is the truth of who you are. The land on the left, the owner is Satan, the ruler is sin. We are sons of Adam. His power, sin, exercised its authority and power over us as Adam's children. That led us to commit sins and led to spiritual death and separation from God. Now we live under, in the land of grace. Owner, God, ruler is grace and Jesus Christ. Who are we? Sons of God. Power, we're no longer under the authority and power of sin, but under that of grace and of Jesus. Leads us to obedience, leads us to Christ, righteousness, and holiness. You live in a different address than you used to live at. When he took you into the ground, through the ground, and up out of the ground again, he moved you. You got a new address. This is what he did for you. And when we deliberately sin, we live incongruously with who we now are. I know this is a lot. Hang with me for another 10 minutes. Let me finish up Paul's argument in chapter 6. Under deliberate sin. The justified have been set free from the land and therefore the power of sin. They have a new life and power and they live under a new master. You're saying to me, well, okay, okay. The death Christ died, he died to sin. The life Christ lives, he lives to God. I am, according to Peter, supposed to walk in his Steps or his footsteps. What is my life to be characterized by? The life Christ lives, he lives to God. What's the life I'm walking away from? The death Christ died, he died to sin. Therefore, the death I died, I died to sin. And the life he lives, he lives to God. The life I live, I should live for God. 
That should be my consuming passion, to live to God as unto God. Through union with Jesus Christ, the justified are partakers of his power over sin, and they should now live to God. Okay, okay, Bill. I've tried a lot of things, though, and nothing seemed to help. How do I stop doing what I know I shouldn't do? That's what we're going to talk about. As a result of what we're going to talk about, in the promised land, you won't be sinless but you can sin less. You will not be sinless. I don't believe there's any such teaching in the New Testament that we will be sinless this side of heaven. But I can sin less. Caution, this is not a light switch. Tonight you go, I get it, Woohoo! I'm free. No, <laughs> no, because Daddy and I would have a conversation about that too. Let's pretend I'm going to talk about anger again. And he says, okay, Bill, you're angry because, you know, because frankly you want to be me. And you want to rule not only your life, but a lot of other people's lives. And by the way, you know, gosh, I couldn't help but notice, Bill, you're driving to church. And you were going to, you know, tell a lot of people about me and tell them what my word says. And I think you're going to worship me too. And all of that why you want to be God? Uh, yeah. Yeah, Daddy. Now we're down to the nub. Now we're down to it. But I can sin less as I begin to get this. Because the second conversation we would have is, Bill, if I take this away from you, if I take anger away from you, you know what you'll do? Yeah, Daddy, I do. Could you articulate it for me? Yeah, I can. I won't need to be as dependent on you. I'll be even more self-reliant than I currently am. And he said, good boy, right answer. So I'm going to keep you dependent on me because that's the best place for you to be. Yep, Daddy, you're right. Please don't take anger away from me. Make me be dependent on you more and more because that's the best place for me to be. I'm way too tempted to be self-reliant and independent and chart my own course and be my own God. What I need to be is dependent. It's like he's God. He's kind of thought of everything. And he only wants what's best. He says, come on, agree with me. <sighs> I want to agree with you. As a result, in the promised land, you won't be sinless, but you can sin Less. All right. Daily learning. Daily learning to sin less. Remember, though sin is dead to us, we are not yet dead to sin. Hugely important. Sin still calls to us over the wall. It still promises us life and enjoyment. It lies. But God has made us partakers of his power over sin, and that power should increasingly reveal itself through a lifestyle of righteousness and holiness. What do you need to keep doing? I'm going to show you in a second. Keep moving away from the wall. 
This is his expectation. This is meganoita. God did not expect you and me to just say, whenever I feel like obeying God, that's when I'll obey. That's not characteristic of Jesus, and that cannot be characteristic of us. His expectation is we daily learn to sin less. Sin continues to call to me through the wall. Right? You might want to call it temptation. You ever hear it calling to you? Again, you don't. I do because I'm a sinner. If you hear temptation calling to you from behind the wall, it's not coming from Jesus, guaranteed. If he tells you to do something, if that voice tells you to do something that's not in the Bible, guess who it isn't? It isn't Jesus. Who is it? It's this guy over here, and he's got a big megaphone, and he yells at me all the time. And then he whispers to me, and he calls me over, and he says, it's just one thing. And it's not that big. You can be forgiven for that. Just do what you want to do. Make yourself happy. And I start moving toward the wall. Now, I can't go through the wall. I can't go under the wall. I can't get over the wall. But what can I do? I can start <laughs> pressing my body up against the wall. I hear you. I hear you. I like what I hear. I believe you. What's Jesus doing? Bill, Bill, come, come to me. Don't go back to the Pharaoh. Come to me. I love you. Do you understand the incongruity when we start, when we start saying, I'm going to do temptation, I'm going in that direction? Do you understand from this picture what that looks like? I'm visual. This picture helps me a ton. This is what it looks like. All right. Why should I not listen to the guy with the megaphone? Because he's no longer my king. He's no longer the ruler. Who is? Jesus. Jesus is my ruler. Every day, I have to walk away from the wall. Learning to sin less. Transforming the heart begins in the mind. Romans 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, Paul starts in the first 10 verses. He says, I am to know. He tells me some things that I am to know. I am no longer who I was. I am now united with Christ as a for example of what he wants us to know. My will, he says in verse 11, I am to reckon or I am to consider. That's an accounting term. You are to write it into a ledger. You're to count on it. It boils down to this. I must trust God's word more than, you go ahead and fill in the blank, my past, my past experiences, what my mind is telling me right now. Worst of all, and actually most persuasive to us in temptation, I don't care if you're male or female, feelings. How do I feel about this right now? Because I'm going to do what I feel like I want to do. I can tell. Have you ever done this? I, I know what the speed limit is. But I feel like driving faster than it. And I'm going to do what I feel like doing. I know what the speed limit sign says. There's, there's nothing my mind doesn't know here. What do I do? I do what I feel like doing. 
So Paul says, first, know these things. Second, reckon. You've got to reckon this as more valid, more truthful than what you think, what your past experiences with this have been, with your past, and with your feelings. This has to win all the time. And then I am to yield to the truth of this word. I, am no, I no longer serve sin as a ruler. I now serve Jesus. Let me make this Monday morning, I hope, relevant. Remember the old what would Jesus do? Little bracelets? Remember those? Mine doesn't look like that. I added a W. I never can figure out what Jesus would do. That bracelet really frustrated me. What would Jesus do? Uh, I think he would do every time I read the Gospels. What would Jesus do here? He took a left and I would have taken a right. And I go, whoa, I didn't see that one coming. I would have gone down the road and he would have gone this way and I would have gone that way. He would zig when I would zag and I would zag when he would zig. I can't figure out what Jesus does. So I added a W. What would Jesus want me to do here? I learned that from the Bible. I don't have to guess what Jesus would want me to do. I have to find it in the Bible. What would Jesus want me to do here? Here it is. Okay? So what would Jesus want me to do? It's right in here. Now it's no mystery. What would Jesus want me to do? Look it up. Read it. That's why we keep hiding the word in our heart so that I might not sin against you. Because I've got the word hidden in my heart. What do you need to do with the word? Be in it, read it, take it in, digest it, chew it up, swallow it, get it inside of you. What would Jesus want me to do? Okay, now this is going to look like a checklist. This is like when you started driving. You went, oh my gosh, there's a gas gauge and a speedometer and a windshield wiper thing and a this and a this and mirrors and I'm supposed to be this and there's people whizzing around me. Do you remember what it was like to drive when you first started driving and how many things were happening in your brain as you tried to Get your arms around this thing. And these days, no one in this room, there are people who drive, they're not even looking at the road, they're watching their phone. And they're just glancing up every once in a while. Right? They become so comfortable with driving, I'm so good at it that I can read my phone and not even pay attention to what's going on around me. Wrong. It went from, ah, 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 to, I'm so good at this, I can read this and drive. What do I need to know? First, what do I need to know in the situation? Do I need to know something about my identity, something about my master, something about his power? Not my power, his power. Is anything too hard for me, says the Lord. Do you remember he said that? Do you believe that? Really? Most of the time? You're such a good Christian. What do I need to know? So the first thing you have to ask yourself is begin at the beginning. What do I need to know? And it's more like, what do I need to remind myself of? Next, what do I need to reckon or count on? I need to reckon and count on the Word of God. The Word of God is more true than what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, my past experiences, my past Anything. The word of God is more true than that. My feelings will lie to me. Have you figured that out yet? Your feelings will lie to you. 
If that's new news, man, you got everything. You, you got what you paid for tonight. Okay, what do I need to reckon? What do I need to count on? You need to count on the Bible. You need to count on the Word of God. What do I need to yield? Oh, this is so good. Maybe you need to yield a desire, a feeling, a privilege, revenge. Here's a good one. My tongue. Oh, really? Do I have to yield my tongue? What does James say about the tongue? An uncontrollable member. How about my actions, other actions, right? What do I need to yield? Here's what I know. Here's what I've got to stand on. Now, what do I need to yield? i got to give over control of something to Jesus. He's my king. He deserves it. I'm angry. How do I yield that up? It happens so fast. It just, the emotions. Afterward. Afterward. Let's say you have a coworker or a neighbor or a, a relative, and every time you get around them, it winds up in an argument or a little tiny conflict. Right? And so every day you're like, oh, I'm surprised that I got angry about them, angry at them again. No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. The first two or three times you might be surprised. Guess what happens after that? Daddy wants to talk to you in the family room. Not for bad things, but to say, Bill, you know what you're walking into every day, right? <laughs> yeah, Daddy. You know that likely something's going to happen that's going to be the occasion for anger. Yeah, Daddy. Hey, Bill, why don't you meditate on 1 Peter chapter 2, <laughs> verses 18 and on. Why don't you meditate on that today? Because I'd love to be with you. And maybe what you need to do is prepare ahead of time for your day. Invite me in from the very beginning. Not after it's over, but you know it's likely coming. Why not invite me into that before we get started in your day? I might be able to help. Good idea. Good idea, Daddy. <laughs> the person who says, I just can't keep myself from getting angry. You're right. You can't. I agree with you. However, deliberate sin, and anger is sin, unless yours is righteous anger, and I suggest to you that there might not be such a thing from a human perspective, uh, unless it's righteous anger, anger is a sin. Therefore, if you get angry, it's a sin. And you need to call it such. And how are you going to continue to deal with deliberate sin? How do I stop doing the things I should do? Oh, I, I just can't. Throw my hands up. Lord, you made me this way. Ooh, what have you just done? You've thrown his creation back in his face just like Jonah. I knew you were going to do this. I can't do it. You made me to do something and you can't. Again, I know none of you have ever done that, but if I'm a sinner and can humorously uh, engage you, that's what I want to do. What do I need to know? What do I need to reckon and count on? What do I need to yield? I am to remember who I am and whose I am. I need to summon up the word to my mind in order to apply the truth to the situation, and then I need to act in faith in accordance with that truth. The Bible says... We just read that Peter passage. What does he say? If you're mistreated for doing good, bear it. 
He didn't say, you are justified in being angry. He didn't say that. <laughs> Maybe he left that out. If you only knew Greek. Maybe he says it in the Greek. Doggone, I've looked. It's not there. <laughs> he does not give us permission to get angry. Anger is not, God is righteously angry. I'm not righteously angry. I'm always self-interestedly angry. <laughs> I can't get angry. What does he tell me about other things? You know, you know. Read these things. Take them to heart. This is what Jesus would want me to do right here in the Bible. And this is where faith comes in is because when the Bible tells me to do it, I don't feel like doing it. I don't want to do it. I risk my whatever reputation for doing it. You can risk a lot of things for standing up for the Bible. In every age, but in our age today, you can risk a lot of things by standing up for the Scriptures and say, I'm not going to do that because the Bible tells me not to. Ha, 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 look at Goody Two-Shoes. Some of you know what that feels like. I know what that feels like. It's okay. You stand. You stand. Because that's your faith saying, Daddy, I'm putting my faith in your word and what you said more than what these people are yelling at me. I don't have to do what they yell at me to do anymore. I'm going to do what you say. I'm going to take my chances with you. That's what faith looks like. Make this a habit. At the beginning, it's going to feel like driving a car. Lots of things to pay attention to. What was the checklist? And to know and to reckon and to blah. And by that time, the guy's already sped past you and you can't even catch him if you wanted to. Well, good. <laughs> We've distracted you enough that you haven't pursued it. Make this a habit, and through his mighty power at work within you, you will sin less. You will not be sinless, but you will sin less. Next week, Romans 7. Here's where stopping the downhill slide right now. Guess what? Romans 7 and 8 is how do we start making progress uphill. So we're going to look at that in Romans 7 and 8 next week. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. I pray your spirit would just push this deeper and deeper into our souls. Thank you for your wonderful, amazing love and grace that rescued us and delivered us to a place through death, burial, and resurrection. We are no longer who we were. We no longer live at the same address. We no longer have the same master. We no longer have to do what he says. We have you, and we long to be like Jesus. Would you continue to draw us toward yourself and away from the wall every day, please? And we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.